welcome into the show. It is Daniel Workman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. super early morning wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Thursday morning. Coming up uh, in a few minutes after the break, we will be joined by Patrick Hodgins. He is the uh, head coach of Bavarian's SC men's team up in uh, in Wisconsin. And it is a very storied club. It's been around for a long time. They've had a lot of success, and uh, especially in the, in the amateur space. That's where they, they have been in their entire existence. And we're looking forward to uh, having him on the show to talk about uh, his experience and, and, and the club and where they are and where they are. They hope to be and in the future. So that's coming up in just a few minutes. I wanted to open the show today talking a little bit about, um, you know, a word that's not really used in uh, in American soccer, and that is innovation. Uh, we are a country that has Silicon Valley, and we have created incredible companies over the decades. Uh, we, we are a place that that people from around the world come to 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 be a part of business and in the economy. And and I have said many many times that uh, the American sports economy is the greatest sports economy on earth uh, and and you can see uh, the the NBA the NFL Major League Baseball the NHL all having big presence uh, in, in the country soccer has not been uh, handled well enough to be in that conversation uh, in a legitimate way it is it is still not considered to be mainstream yet and i think i think a lot of it has to do with the lack of innovation uh within u.s soccer and the federation and the leadership and 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 here's what i mean by that there have been opportunities as we've talked about on the show many times to really do things differently to think outside the box really come up with some some cool creative solutions to really not just grow the sport but grow it exponentially and some of those are are in the realms of creating a connected system of leagues. This was talked about uh, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, um, and there was a plan put forth to do this connected system of le- system of leagues. And and uh, unfortunately, the, the plan got hijacked. Uh, the plan by Warner Fricker, uh, president of uh, U.S. Soccer at the time, and uh, the country has has never really recovered from from that that missed opportunity of innovation uh and it's a shame because it's really that that's part of our culture that's part of the dna of this country is to think outside of the box to have this entrepreneurial spirit this spirit of innovation um you know sometimes necessity um forces us to, to come up with solutions, things that we, we we may not normally want to do or think about doing. We get we get forced into a situation where we have to do them uh, in order to to try to create a successful outcome. And we all know what's what's going on in the world with COVID nineteen and and the pandemic, um, and it's forced you know our entire lives to come to a to a halt. You know, we, we kind of hit pause on life. 
in in many ways for many people and uh, and especially sports and so in that it's created a lot of uh tricky situations some hardships trying to figure out logistics and in the case of of the sporting landscape it, i think it also gives us some opportunities and and one of those uh opportunities is 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 an opportunity to do something uh, like what the NWSL and Major League Soccer are both looking at, and that is, hey, we're going to just look at an option of bringing teams to a central location. That way we feel like we can do uh, a, a better job of reducing uh, potential uh, outbreak of COVID-19 to, to try to keep the players uh, more healthy by by not having them uh, travel as much that they can all be in kind of one location and then we just play matches uh, almost like a, a World Cup kind of feeling but but not traveling to multiple venues um, and and look I think in a time where you may not be able to play in front of fans for a long time, uh, and and you know that travel is is an issue, uh, just from a logistic standpoint. Not not even um, you know uh, just a, a health standpoint. It's it's not a bad idea to have that conversation. And the NWSL is looking at Salt Lake City. Uh, I've visited uh, those facilities there uh, in Harriman and and in in Salt Lake City and. Um, you know, it would be it would be uh, I think a pretty good setup for the NWSL. It could definitely handle uh, those those teams coming into town and training, housing, uh, etc. And um, you know, it could it could make for uh, a pretty interesting um, you know kind of tournament uh, for the NWSL and. And, and get their, their games with their, their TV deal with CBS. It would give them the ability to kind of, you know, set up shop in one place. And so that would also lower some of their production budgets and production costs. So some of that makes sense. That's some some innovative thinking. And I, I think that should be encouraged. I think that's that's a good idea. If you can't get to the fans and it's not a good thing for, for health and safety, then look, this is one of those things of thinking outside of the box. I think we need more of this in American soccer, not less. Uh, and, and Major League Soccer is having the same kind of uh, conversations about Orlando and Vegas and a few other places they, that they've looked at. And I think uh, everything has to be on the table when we're talking about coming up with solutions. Um there's a lot of things going on. You know, the USL is trying to figure out, um, you know, how to stay afloat, how to keep their teams and their team owners afloat. And the players are, are, are negotiating at the same time, uh, you know, with a collective bargaining, bargaining agreement. So there's, there's some back and forth on that. And they're trying to come up with some innovative ways to keep the league uh, viable and, and really try to set it on a path for growth. Uh, to go beyond the level of where it is. And so, you know, that's taking some some outside-of-the-box thinking. The NWSLs having to, to make some, you know, uh, considerations, and the players, the NWSL players are having to make some some considerations as well and try 
trying to figure out some things. Same with Major League Soccer. And and this is happening around the world. Everyone's having to, to adjust. We're all having to kind of figure this thing out as we go. And one of the things I, th- I thought was that was, was pretty cool um, is something that, that I saw last night from uh, a Danish club, AGF Aarhus. Uh, and they have uh, d- decided to give free tickets, and and they're going to put up uh, screens uh, with cameras and, uh, around their stadium since the fans cannot attend the matches, and and allow fans to watch on Zoom uh, the match and and be able to kind of you know um, make their their voices heard and and give a different. Uh, experience uh, for the players as well as uh, for those fans as well. I, I, look, would we rather be in the stadium together? Um, sure, absolutely. But I think this is a this is a really cool thing uh, that they're going to try out, and and I think uh, more innovation in American soccer, more innovation in across the sporting landscape is a good thing, um, and and I would hope that we all encourage more and more of that innovation from from all sectors because. It's not just COVID-19, but it's also how do we make American soccer the best that it can be? And, and we've got to think outside of the current setup, the current system. It's not, it's not getting it done. It's not reaching every community. It's not connecting every community. And, and so uh, innovative thinking, outside-of-the-box thinking, creative problem-solving thinking is necessary to do that. And, and, and I hope that we see more of it. Speaking of that outside-of-the-box thinking, this whole company, DuckTickBrand.com, is an outside-of-the-box thinker. They're always coming up with new ideas, and you should check them out at DuckTickBrand.com. Check them out today at DuckTickBrand.com, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. Place an order. When you do, use promo code DWSHOW. You'll get 10% off of that order at DuckTickBrand.com. We'll be right back with Patrick Hodgins of Bavarians SC.
Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we are joined by Patrick Hodgins. He is the uh, head coach of Bavarians SC up there in, in Wisconsin. Patrick, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. So give us a little bit of background about this club. If, if you've paid any attention to adult amateur soccer in this country, it's a name that continually comes up as a contender every year. It's, it's, a, it's a competitive, uh, seems to be a well-run, and, and, and since you're the coach, we'll say well-coached team, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's obviously doing a lot on the field. Um, tell us a little bit about the club itself. What's, what's the, the history behind the club? Sure. Uh, the club was founded in 1929, uh, mainly by, you know, German immigrants that were coming over here established the roots in the club so last year we celebrated our 90th uh, anniversary as as a club um we take a lot of pride in that uh through the the decades it's had its up and downs but for the most part it's been highly successful whether it's been winning you know local championships state championships regional championships or you know there are eight national championships so so in terms of the level of play, what leagues, you know, just for the audience sake, what leagues are you guys playing in currently? And, and where are you getting your, your players from to play, you know, with your teams? Sure. So currently we play in the UPSL, uh, United Premier Soccer League. We play in their Midwest uh, Conference. We've been in that league since, I believe, 2000. 18 uh, was our was our first year in in the UPSL. Uh, we've done very well in that league. We've won our our division the last two years. We won our conference the last two years. 2018 we won the spring national championship, and then last year 2019 we lost in the national semifinal for the UPSL. Uh, our players come from mainly the Metro Milwaukee area. Uh, we have a group of guys, you know, between like 25 and 32 that make up the vast majority of our team, three quarters of our team. And then we fill it with a quarter of college kids uh, from various division one, two and three programs from Wisconsin. We have good relationships with the University of Wisconsin uh, Marquette University, UW-Milwaukee, and then some other schools that our youth players will go out to and play and then come back for the summer. So we really try to take care of, of those kids as they come back. So um, with, with the success that you guys have had on the field, do you think that's attributed to some of the history of the club? Is it the style of play, the players that are available? You know, what would you attribute the, the success that you guys have had, at least in the, in the past few years, um, you know, for the club? Yeah, I think the last few years, it's really been our group of guys. Um, we have a really special group of, of players. It's really led by three X pros, you know, that, you know, seen it, done it, can really lead our guys on, on the field. Um, you know, those guys really set the tone for everybody else. And then we've been really fortunate to add talent as we go. So, you know, the more 
we win you know championships and the more exposure we get it kind of casts a wider net of players that we can get um into our program but i have to give a lot of credit to our to our guys our training sessions are intense they get after each other they it's really tougher than some of the matches we play and that's not you know to discredit anybody but everyone's always fighting for a spot in the team and that leads to guys wanting to perform their best. You know, there's something to be said about sporting merit and competition, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) even within the club context, you know, like having players competing for those spots, it makes you want to bring your a game, you know, every day to, to training. Um, You know, the, the last dance, the, the Bulls documentary with MJ and all of that uh, been airing for the last few weeks with ESPN. One of the things I, I you know, knew about Jordan was his um, competitive challenges to his teammates, you know, about making them rise to the occasion. And, and if you couldn't rise, he was like, I got no use for you. You can just sit on the bench or go to another team. But yeah. that that level of, you know, uh, accountability, expectation. Um, and, and one of the things he said during that documentary that really stood out to me is I never asked of my teammates something I wasn't already doing or was willing to do. Um, and, and I think that's a key, key point that you bring up about these guys. They show up to training competing. They want it. They want, you know, they're looking for a spot. They're wanting to earn their spot. Um, and, a, and, a, and quality attracts quality. So, yeah. um, you know, it seems like you guys have been doing a good job of that, building that environment, uh, you know, for the club and, and it's showing on the field as well. Um, give us a little bit of the, the connection with the community. Like, how do you guys go about trying to build community support and, and really connect with your your local context, your local uh, city and community? Sure, so that's actually for us, one of the areas that we, I wouldn't say like struggle, but it's one of the areas that we need to improve upon in all, in all honesty. And it really comes down to the fact that our men's team is attached to a youth club and the youth club competes with other youth clubs in the areas for players or, you know, for, you know, for coaches. And sometimes it leads to people not wanting to support us because they might belong to a different club and they see that their, their club is their loyalty to that specific youth club. And I completely understand that. I think what people miss though, is that a lot of our guys have come playing through different youth clubs. It's not just an exclusive, you know, hey, you played Bavarian's youth, so you're going to play for our our men's team. Our men's team is made up of the best players that we can we can find and that work for work for us. And like you said, through sporting merit, those players will play. And I think that's the thing that's really missed in the community as our guys embrace representing Milwaukee. We embrace representing Wisconsin. Um, but sometimes it's not always reciprocated. So give us a little bit of, uh, you know, background. Milwaukee is, is not talked about in, in American soccer circles as a hotbed, right? I mean, you hear the typical 
Southern California, maybe Northern California. Sometimes you hear about Texas um, and, and some other places, but you, you don't hear Milwaukee come up very often as like, hey, you got to go to Milwaukee to find the next player. And that's not sure. to say, and that's no, no diss on Milwaukee. I'm just stating like that. That's kind of the general talk around American soccer. So give for the audience, give us a little bit of, you know, Milwaukee soccer scene. What's it like? Like how many clubs are in the area? Like, you know, um, give us a, a kind of a picture of, of the soccer ecosystem and landscape that, that you guys are existing in each and every day. Yeah, so I really I think Milwaukee and Wisconsin soccer overall is is overlooked. Um, you know, if you look his you know uh, history wise, whether it's Bavarians or otherwise, you know guys like Bob Gansler have coached the national team and grew up in the city, grew up a Bavarian. You know, Jimmy Banks grew up in the city, played for the national team. You know, Jesse Marsh grew up down the road in Racine, and now look at what he's doing at, at Salzburg. And there's so many players have come through here that have gone to professional careers that, you know, may not reach the highest levels and the most notoriety, but they've come through here and they've had really good MLS or, you know, USL careers, you know, kids like Ethan Finley and, you know, Jimmy Banks and his, Jimmy Banks, his son, you know, plays, you know, for forward Madison now. And there's a lot of players that come through Milwaukee. And I do think, the kids here overall get get overlooked, whether that's nationally from the youth ranks all the way up. There's a variety of clubs that are doing a really good job, you know, producing players that are going on to, you know, uh, college careers, professional careers. And sometimes the door may not always be open for them. Um, regarding the clubs, it's pretty competitive. I'd say probably there's, you know, 10 to 15 clubs in Metro, in Metro Milwaukee that serve, you know, different types of kids, different types of communities. Um, you know, so there's always competition for, you know, players and spots in leagues, which I think drives everybody to, you know, up their game to, to be better and to have, you know, a really good experience for their players. Yeah. I, 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 um, when when you look at the the state of Wisconsin, you obviously you know you know about the Packers, and and you know like Milwaukee Bucks. You have the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, professional sports now with with USL League One with uh, you know Ford Madison. Um, you, you've got a little bit of the professional scene there in 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 Wisconsin, but with that kind of level of you know having the nba major league baseball as well as the nfl in the state of wisconsin um the fact that that soccer is still somewhat overlooked within the american soccer landscape is, is a little bit of a head scratcher um i i know when uh when when eric winaldo was running for president uh in 2018 um Wisconsin in general was a state that would come up in conversations as why, why are we not seeing more engagement, not from Wisconsin side of that conversation, but from everyone else? Like, why isn't that part of, you know, because 
like you guys with the Bavarians. And, and as I mentioned, you, you, there is a, a little bit of a legacy there in, in history with producing players and coaches, you know, from Wisconsin, why that's not a, a bigger or, or considered a bigger hotbed uh, of soccer has been a little bit of a head scratcher and really kind of leads me to, you know, zoom out and look at the system in general. Um, it, it's why like, just like with your training sessions um, and just like having 10 to 15 clubs in Milwaukee, for example, um, why competition and having access to that competition is so important because it, you allow cities, clubs within those cities to, to do something um, from the bottom up, not just, you know, what we deem as, Hey, this is, you're good enough, right? Top down kind of gatekeeper mentality. Um, when you look at, you know, Bavarians getting back to, to the club itself, when, when you look at, you know, each season kind of building off of the, the previous and, and, and putting together teams and looking at schedules and taking into account, you know, training sessions and the, the climate and the seasons up there. What are some major factors for a team that's, you know, is a northern team in the country? Uh, what are some factors that you guys have to take into account in terms of planning and preparing for a season and when you can play and, 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 and finding opponents, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, that's the hardest thing we have, obviously, is is the winters. You know, um, starting late December through early March, it's really difficult to get on an outdoor field, if not impossible in most situations. So whether it's just us renting, you know, indoor space, you know, and just using your typical indoor field on every Sunday, we just try to get the guys out as much as we can you know, to keep them getting touches, that repetition, just so when we are able to start playing in, in March, that they're not, you know, too rusty, you know, that they're not really working on getting their touch back. We might have to work on some fitness things, but it's just making sure that they're mentally and physically ready to go once our preseason starts in March. We try to build our preseason through March and April with playing as many college teams as we can play. Um, like I said, we have good relationships with a lot of the local schools. So we try to get on their, uh, you know, spring season game list so we can get in some matches and be ready to go once our league season starts in May, June, July, and then into the hopefully if we've done well, we're still playing in August when, you know, nationals for the competitions roll around. We'll try to let the guys decompress a little bit, take some time off, spend some more time with the families. We'll lose some kids back to their universities. And then, you know, we'll just try to, you know, play once or twice uh, in trainings during the fall season and then start the cycle all over again. In terms of, uh, you know, taking into account the, the climate there's a, a conversation about scheduling and, and, you know, you have the European leagues that generally run fall to spring and here in America, we run uh, things backwards. We'll run like March to like November, um, which up North may be great to play in June and July. Um, 
in the South. Um, and you spent some time in, uh, in Florida before in the summers, not so good. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you feel like you need to run with an oxygen pack on your back. Um, and, and, and some kind of dehumidifier, <laughs> yeah. you know, to deal with the humidity. Um, so we, we have a, we have a big, uh, wide ranging climate situation with the U S you know, we're a continent sized country. We do have, you know, places like Milwaukee that are weather wise are just completely different than other places in the country, like Southern California or Florida, or, you know, so on and so forth. So looking at scheduling, one of the things that I, uh, have looked at in, in like, how can you do fall to spring and how can you run things to, basically try to get everything to finish up, you know, in May, which is generally what happens around the world. Uh, I started doing a lot of research about, you know, Scandinavian leagues, obviously winter's an issue. Um, and, and looking at, you know, what they do and then, and then also looking, uh, at like Germany and some of what they do, uh, with the Bundesliga. And, and I feel like you could, you could set a fall to spring, uh, calendar system in America pretty easily if you do a couple things. And, and that is first and foremost, start with what I call kind of your, your anchor date. And, and for the purposes of this, it'd be like finals, our anchor dates are going to be in May, like cup finals, you know, any playoff finals, everything's going to be in May. Let's work back from that. So that's going to be kind of begin with the end in mind, right? And looking at, at Scandinavia as, as a, you know, a inspiration for this, a lot of their leagues will kick off their fall seasons like 1st of July. So they'll have a very, very short, you know, window in June. And then it's really kind of a preseason. They kick off their season in July. And then they, they have a pretty long extended winter break to deal with uh, some of their winter issues. Uh, would something like that be workable for a club in Wisconsin that was playing in a scheduled format of, you know, let's say fall to spring where you, you did have kind of June is kind of a somewhat down month of, of preseason and then season kickoff, you know, first of July roughly, and then running through with some kind of winter break finishing in May. Is that something that you guys could work around uh, in, a, in a scenario like that where you did have, the bulk of your break time in the winter and not in the summer, but still finish up with a signature final in May. Yeah. I mean, I think from an adult perspective, we could try to make it work. You know, I think if you're understanding of some of our issues weather-wise and we might have to, you know, travel a little bit further South, whether that's, you know, Indiana or to parts of Illinois or, you know, just a little bit like that to get in some games earlier in maybe late February, I think that would be doable. It would just take some work for everybody to be on the same page on how that's really going to get done. But I, I, mean, I, I think if you sat down and really asked people, you know, what would make sense if people could do it, I think we could get enough soccer people together to figure out the, the specifics of it to make it work. Um, you know, to your point, Last year we played you know, the UPSL semifinal outside of Dallas, Texas, and it had a, it was over 100 degrees. I mean, the conditions on a, on a turf field were they were they were they were rough. 
you know, for our guys. And, so brutal. You know, but both teams had to deal with it, you know, so no excuses there or anything like that. But it didn't make for the best environment for us to, to play that match. Yeah, I've talked to, to uh, quite a few medical professionals as well as former players who said, give me cold weather over, you know, 100-degree hot, humid weather any day of the week. Uh, yeah. I can always throw on some extra clothes. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> That's true. So <laughs> when, true. It, when you're dealing with the heat and heat stroke and, and things like that, it's just, it's, just a, it's actually a, to me, a lot more dangerous looking at some of the heat issues than the cold. It's certainly an inconvenience and something that, you know, like you said, would have to be strategized to make it to work, you know, properly for everyone. Um, but I do think it's, those are hurdles that can be overcome uh, if, if, you know, we want it to, as a country to say, Hey, we're going to make, you know, may our signature finals. And the reason why I look at that is a couple things. Um, you know, when you, when you get into the highest levels, uh, you really want to engage in the transfer markets at the highest levels of a, of a system, right? So whether that's bringing in players or sending out players that are, are developed and produced, that summer transfer window is, is the biggest uh, transfer season, transfer window in the calendar year, uh, especially with, with Europe being the, the main beneficiary of, you know, alignment for that. Um, you, you do have a, you know, a month in January for, for transfers, but when they're in the middle of their season and then you have um, all of American League's basically in the middle of their season while you have a three-month transfer window um, in the summers, it doesn't necessarily work out as nicely and, and neatly as uh, some may think that, well, it's a transfer window. They can just MLS or USL or somebody else can sell a player or bring a player in. And, and when you're in the middle of the season, that's why you don't see a ton of blockbuster moves in January in Europe. Uh, it's the middle of the season. They'd much rather handle that business in the summer. Right. Um, and so I think for that reason, it would just be, it, it would be good at the, at the top to be in alignment. But I think a bigger thing um, outside of the, the player health and safety that we just, you know, referenced is really kind of, you know, taking May and making it soccer month. Um, right. You know, you know where March Madness is, you know, uh, college football and the, the BCS and the championships and the bowl games are all in that kind of December, you know, early January window. You know the Super Bowl. You know the NBA's finishing up their finals in June. Major League Baseball finishing up in October. Um, it's a very crowded and congested fall when you have the World Series and Major League Baseball, you have the college football and the NFL in full swing in the fall going into the winter versus May where it's, you know, uh, on maybe not this year with, with coronavirus, <laughs> you're not getting much sports on TV except maybe the Bundesliga that's back right now. But, um, you know, you turn on Memorial Day and you might get a baseball game or two, but, like, there's really nothing going on. Um, yeah. other than like, you know, I think it's the, the national championships for lacrosse. Uh, and, and the only reason why I know is because there's just not a lot on TV right. on, on Memorial day. Um, and so I think the month of May makes a lot of sense in, in to kind of work back from that to make it work. Um, 
to me would, would be a good thing for, for all levels of the sport. Um, not just, you know, talking at a high level with player transfers in and out at say the major league soccer level, but just for everyone to, to be able to have this month that we say hey, like, this is soccer month in, in America kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, obviously working backwards, where if you were in the South, for example, you may not want your league kicking off until middle to end of August and then playing through the winter with no break because you don't need to. Uh, you're fine playing in that weather because it, it probably feels better than, than August. Yeah. Uh, where you guys would need to start earlier in more of a Scandinavian-style calendar uh, so that you could take a longer break and still come back and be, you know um, – ready to go for, for the, the, the may, you know, wind up to a season. So, um, you know, I just, I, I feel like that's something that a lot of people just don't, you know, they, they hear fall to spring is like the snow and then the, the, there's just kind of this freak out. And I'm like, there are ways. It's, and it's really you guys that are, are the most, um, have the, the most things to work through from a logistic standpoint. It's really easy to pull off if you're talking about a, you know, league that has a bigger travel footprint, you know, because if, if you're a professional uh, soccer team in the North, you can go play in a dome or go play in the South in the winter. No big issues, you know, for the most part. Um, It's you guys who may be playing in a league that have a smaller travel footprint where, yeah, we have an away game, but they're still in the snow too. And that's where you have to really look at Scandinavia and other countries like that as inspirations for uh, models, you know, to create that. So, um, you know, I I just think, I think it's a conversation that we need to have. I think it's a way, easy way for us to, to bring in better TV money that could filter down to clubs like yours playing uh, in a, in, in the American soccer to, to have access to more revenue in the system. And I think the TV money would be higher by having the ability to really just kind of, you know, if you had all these amateur championships and professional championships all taking place in the month of May, just seems to me like a, a really good uh, alignment for all of the leagues where, as you mentioned, you guys were playing in August with the UPSL, you had the USL in October you had major league soccer who, who used to go into December and then decided they wanted to try to end up in November. Of course, this year with coronavirus, we have no idea where anything's going to end up, but uh, you know, it, I, I just think it would be good to get some alignment um, in, in the system from a scheduling standpoint uh, would be helpful. Um, when you, when you are, um, you know, putting on your coaching hat and, and you're, you're trying to, you know, create um, the best team that you can put on the field. What are some things that you're, you're focusing on that allows you to have the success you guys have had on the field? So I think first and foremost for me, it's how the guys interact with each other. There's just some groups that, you know, uh, on the field, they just – work well off of each other they have that chemistry you know we have a, a group of brothers uh two of them there are two best attacking players it's Braden and logan andrick 
you know, they were division uh, three college players. So by no means how do they play at the highest level of any of the players that we have, but there are two most dynamic attacking players that we have on our roster. And they play really well together. They've played a lot of games with each other. And there are certain things that they do really well. And because of the things that they do, we need to fill in a couple other guys that are more maybe just like a ball winner, you know, or that will cover the space that he's going to vacate because those two like to roam a lot on the field to find the ball, you know, to, to do their own type of thing where it's not really a positional, they're not that positional orientated on how they play. We're not like, hey, you're the left winger, you stay over there and hopefully we get you the ball. It's, hey, go find it. Make something happen for us. And a lot of our stuff goes through them. So then we try to build a system around that. You know, so we have outside backs that like to get up and play to fill the space that they're vacating. You know, we have two really good center backs that like to, you know, control the match, you know, are, are, are good in the air, good ball winners. And then we have, you know, a six and an eight that, you know, will – do the do the dirty work, you know, and they'll they'll put in the, the those shifts for you, and they'll make those tackles so everyone else can kind of play off of each other. If you were to identify some coaching inspirations for you, whether it's tactically, whether it's man management, what what are some some models that you kind of look at as inspirations for how you coach? Sure. So. For us, I mean, we play 4-3-3. We play 4-3-3 against everybody and anybody. You know, we like to play attacking style football. Um, you know, we do have a good defensive back line, you know, that can kind of hold it down for us. But we like to really push, you know, the tempo and get after people and, and score goals, you know, in its simplistic form. Um, from the coaching side of things, I think the man management and the player management is the most important thing. Um, like you talked about, about, you know, the, the, the last dance and things like that, where the way that Phil Jackson can kind of handle Dennis Rodman to me is an art form where I always believe that you don't treat everybody uh, the same, but you treat them all equal. And that might seem like, it doesn't make sense, but to me, it does. Where we've had pro guys that have seen it, done it, and you know what? If they miss a training session, it's not a big deal because I know what I can, what I'm going to get from him when it comes to him playing. There's other kids that are younger that may have more to prove that, you know what? Hey, you might need to be at all of these training sessions to show the group that you belong, you know, because we know that. The, that other player who had the pro career that he does belong. And that's the biggest thing for me is just managing our guys, trying to be upfront with them about expectations and what we need from them. And they really hold each other accountable. It's, you know, they want to win. We're, we're here to win. We organize teams to win. And they really hold each other accountable when it comes to the bottom line and how we're playing and what their expectations are. So would you say that you're more a pep or a clop guy in terms of your man management style? Uh, 
I'm definitely not like the real, you know, tactical like X's and O's. I think some of it can kind of be overblown. You know, I think it's good to have, you know, a, a strategy for your team going into a game. But I can't tell you one time where I've necessarily changed our tactics or our, you know, process uh, against an opponent. I mean, I think we're going to do what we're going to do, and hopefully we can do it better than the opponent. Um, you know, I, I think both of those guys are extremely good coaches, but, you know, I, I just like the way that Klopp interacts with his players. And you can tell when those guys play that they have a genuine love and admiration for that man. So. Yeah, I, I think that uh, – I think Pep is – a mad genius. Uh, tactically, like, I just think the guy's brilliant. Yeah. I think Klopp is the best man manager yeah. I've ever seen uh, in soccer. I mean, the guy, he just, you can see the players just believe that they can walk into hell with water pistols and put out the fire. I mean, you know, yeah. it's just, and they and they come back out of the fire and they're like giving him giant bear hugs and he's like you know running around with them like we did it we did it you know and yeah. so it's just it's so cool to see because um, I think both guys are brilliant I think and that's not to say Klopp's not tactically uh, a phenomenal coach I think he is um, slightly different style than than Pep but I, I think they're both I'd take them both in a heartbeat you know uh, but. Um, you know, I, I just, I love, the, I love, like you said, the way that Klopp interacts with his players and really that feeling of belief uh, that he's able to, to give to his players um, is, is, it's a key thing. And I, and I think at the youth levels, um, it's probably not, you know, that psychosocial emotional support factor is probably not emphasized enough um in youth soccer in america we we get into like mechanics of like making sure we do this right or making sure this and and you know sometimes sometimes you just need a coach that's like loud and running around and and high-fiving his kids and they're just having a blast you know and we're like don't yeah. don't do that don't do that and, you know you know this is and it's like it's not golf bro it's you know did you did you watch Klopp run and bear hug allison in the middle of that you know Everton match whenever they score at the very end they're like oh my god we did it you know yeah. like I mean it you know like that's awesome like you know like share the joy like uh make it contagious so you know I just I just I love that you went there with Klopp I think that's I think that was a really good uh really good guy to pick as somebody that inspires you um yeah, no, I mean I think in a lot of ways you know we get kids or you know players when they're 25, 26, or even in college, a lot of their tendencies as players have already been, you know, developed in, in, in a lot of ways. And it's really hard based on how much we train to go back and tell them like the way they approach the game is, is wrong or that, you know, Hey, you have to, you should pass the ball a, a different way or it's not technically correct. Those tendencies for those players have already been developed. For me, it's just about, developing those relationships with our guys to make them all feel included in what we're doing. Like they have a, they have a voice in, in the process. And I think the more you do that, whether it's with younger kids or, or older uh, adults, 
they buy in and they feel invested with what you're doing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Last question for you. Um, if you guys were in, in a uh, system that had the opportunity to, to build beyond just, you know, an amateur level that you could win, win your national championship, advance, promote, etc. How would that change the way you guys operate and, and make plans and dream and, and, and work on, on Bavarians as a project? Yeah, I think it, that's a really, you know, it's an interesting question for me to, to answer. And the biggest thing for us, you know, like right now is we run off of, you know, sponsorship dollars. You know, our team isn't, isn't funded by, you know, the youth club. We have our, our own adult sponsors for our teams that brings in, in revenue that helps us cover our, our expenses. So our guys and aren't asked to pay dues or, you know, to have to pay money out of their pockets. Um, you know, if the system was open where there was another level to us, I mean, I, I think obviously it might open up more in investors or more sponsorship opportunities. It's just really a hard question for me to, to really give you a very good answer on just because of the history of the club. You know, it's been independently, you know, owned and operated since 1929. So like, we don't really have a group of investors that backs us or is looking for a you know, financial return or anything like that. I mean, we'd obviously really like the opportunity to play, you know, more and more of those teams and you know, to play, you know, USL teams or even get the opportunity to play MLS teams um, as we go up the pyramid. But I, I just don't know how it would impact us, you know, from a day to day, like from a business perspective. Well, I think you, I think you made your answer just, uh, you got there in a roundabout way, but I do think it would change, uh, you know, what, what you guys did in terms of access to more sponsored dollars and yeah. whether that meant outside investment or not. I, I do think, um, there would be an even greater sense of purpose to showing up to training and to play. Cause you, you know, there's a, an even bigger nugget that you're playing for beyond just even a championship, which is a big thing in and of itself. Uh, but to, to even have that be the, the access point to bigger competition and more eyeballs and more support, et cetera. Um, you know, it, the, the, the important thing about your answer that I think a lot of people miss and, and I think we've missed from a Federation, uh, you know, viewpoint and stand, uh, standpoint here is that, um, instead of trying to, you know, micromanage every solution or every situation um, to dictate exactly what Bavarians has to do X, Y, or Z in this format or whatever, um, it's, it's more about the idea of allowing Bav a club like Bavarians to, you know, make your own destiny and, and yeah. organically figure it out you know, have those conversations internally. Um, what do we want to do? How do we want to approach this? Is this a prize that we want to seek, you know? And, and if so, what does that look like? And what, what could that mean for us from a revenue standpoint? What could that mean for us from, you know, attracting better players standpoint? I mean, there's so, there's all these organic kind of like 
it's not just a simple, like short black and white conversation. It's more about like, Hey, it's we, the people it's power to the people it's opportunity and access. And you figure it out. You know, you, you decide what matters, you know, most to you and for you and how you want to approach it rather than like saying, okay, Hey, it's kind of like, you know, to the league, uh, conversation we were having about the the calendar system up north one way of doing things would be differently you know done differently at that level than it would be done down south where you where you wouldn't want to be playing you know in a july and august but you'd want to be playing in the colder months in the in the south same thing when you get into the club level of of a you know a meritocracy of sport is that you let these clubs figure, figure out what they want to dream and how they want to dream and what level they want to dream and then what they're able to then execute on those dreams, you know, because everything that a club sees on the field. And I think this is one of the big uh, misunderstandings about sporting merit is people say, well, you know, you can't have uh, a team playing in the first division playing in a local city park. Like you can't do that. And that's not ever going to happen. Yeah. And the reason why is that organically the system will always like correct itself. So if you're a club and you're on the rise in order to keep those players, you're going to have to get them in a better environment than a city park. You're going to have to get them better accommodations or they're going to go somewhere else. They're going to get eyeballs on them. So bigger clubs are going to come for them anyway. So the odds of you taking like, hey, here's my group of 25, 30 guys. And we started in our local park. And in five years, we're, we're hosting MLS matches in our city park. That's yeah. never going to happen. Right. Never going to happen. Um, and so, but what it does do is it, it allows these clubs to organically grow as they go. So it's like, hey, here's our level right now today. Here's the kind of guys we're attracting. Here's our sponsorship dollars, et cetera. When we get to the next level, it's, it's like, you know, we started by laying a foundation for a house. Now we're going to put up the walls. Now we're going to add this, the roof. Now we're going to add the drywall and the paint and the furniture, et cetera. The, that's what happens organically. It's not forced uh, where we create something out of nothing. It's like, hey, show up. And we're like, we don't know you like, you know, you're, you're a pro team now, but where, where were you five years ago? Like we never heard of you before. Um, that's different when you see a team and and let's say, you know, that just hypothetically that we were in a system where Bavarians could grow and take advantage of your national championships. And all of a sudden Bavarians is you guys are working your way up the ladder it's not a overnight, you know, sensation. You're not like this one hit wonder artist that showed up out of nowhere. It's like, sure. no, those guys are us. Like they're from, yeah. they're from, you know, they're from our city. They're part of our city. We've seen them from the beginning. And I think it, what it ultimately does is part of that organic process. Not only is that happening inside of the club and you're having to continue to improve and get better to keep, up and keep going and going up and keeping your players and attracting better players 
but it also organically builds deeper roots and ties into your city and your community because they're seeing that happen as you go. It gets celebrated on the local news when, when Bavarians wins a national championship and that national championship is now all of a sudden the door that opens to playing USL teams or playing major league soccer teams. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, now it's like, Hey, everybody knows who our players are because, you know, they just, they just got into the, into the big show here. Um, and so I think there's just a lot of, you know, color to that conversation, uh, that goes beyond, you know, what is to me often a, a very kind of short, you know, hypothetical situation that, and honestly, we just don't see it. We don't know what we don't know here in America. You go to Europe and you see it, you can feel it. You know, I, I, I have had conversations in, in Europe with amateur clubs who dream of playing professionally and, and just that dream alone is, is, is worth a few beers of conversation for them. Like it's just part of the conversation and they know it and they, or they'll look back to the glory days when they were a division or two higher and they've, they've fallen on harder times and, and uh, you know, they're still around, they're still loyal members uh, of the club, but they, they wish, you know, they were back where they, where they used to be. Um, yeah. And that's just all part of that deeper connection. Um, and I think it would help so many clubs in this country to have that type of real authentic, deep, uh, rooted connection in their communities. So look, I appreciate you coming on the show and spending time. Best of luck when everything finally settles down and you guys get back on the field. Um, I know between, you, you know, your, your day job and, and your, your, uh, coaching gig here, um, you, you're waiting on a lot to, to reopen and get back to normal. Um, but when it does best of luck to that, how can people, connect with with Bavarians and and even connect with you um and learn more about what you're doing and and learn more about your club sure uh you know uh we have a website people can reach us on uh i think it's just Bavarian you know, soccer club uh we're on twitter facebook um my email address it's patrick hodgins four at gmail.com if people want to reach out and we, we'd be happy to interact with Whoever, if clubs even have questions about, you know, growing or anything like that, we're always here to help. So, Well, we appreciate your time. Like I said, stay safe. And uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, you can get back out on the field and, and, uh, and start trying to, to win another championship uh, for Bavarians and keep building on that rich uh, legacy. So uh, thanks for joining the show. And thank you very much. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't.
We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for watching the show today. We appreciate it. As always, you can watch at danielworkman.com forward slash watch. DMs are open on Twitter. So if you got any questions or thoughts or ideas, hit me up. I would love to hear from you as always. Thanks for watching. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.